0: I want to invite you, if you would please, to turn with me in your own Bibles, or the Bibles provided for you in the pews, to John chapter 13. We're actually going to read a little bit more than is listed in, uh, in the bulletin. Uh, we're, we're going to read, it's a very lengthy reading, but it's not often we have the opportunity to sit and listen to the Word of God being read to us. I I consider it a privilege to be able to read Scripture this evening, and I trust that we all appreciate the privilege of hearing the Word of God as it's read to us tonight. The Scripture lesson is John chapter 13, and we read all the way from verse 1 to verse 35. Now, please listen, for this is the Word of God. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, A person who's had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His, his whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he finished washing their feet, I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill the Scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me, I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. I tell you the truth, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and asked, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, There is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. What you are about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money… Some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. When he was gone, Jesus said, "'Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him.'" If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. Oh, my little children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told you, just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Amen. Give thanks to God for this reading from his holy word. To God be all praise and all glory, now and forevermore. Amen. In the ancient church, and the medieval church, each one of the four evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, was, was uh, depicted as being represented by a, a particular symbol. Matthew was typically represented by the figure of a man. Mark was typically represented by the, the figure of a lion. Luke by an ox, and John by an eagle. Each symbol points to a different emphasis that each one of the evangelists has in telling his own version of the gospel. The symbol of John is an eagle. I think this is a particularly powerful image and symbol as it points to this this, uh, this beautiful, majestic creature flying high overhead, surveying everything below, missing absolutely nothing. As surely as it absorbs the whole vision, the whole panorama laid out before it, it can spot even the smallest of details happening hundreds of feet below The cry of the eagle is quite remarkable. If ever you've heard an eagle cry, you're surprised the first time you hear it. You might imagine that an eagle's call is, is very strong and resonant, but in reality, it's actually quite shrill. It's almost plaintive. As she flies over creation, looking to and fro, calling out to its young, it almost sounds as if it's weeping over what it sees. Legend has it that the eagle is the only creature that has the power to gaze into the sun. In fact, it was said that when an eagle aged, his sight dimmed and his plumage became dull, he would find a fountain somewhere on earth. And above that fountain, he would fly directly into the sun… And as he flew towards the sun, his plumage would be singed, his eyes would be cleared of the fog of age, and then he would plummet towards the earth and land in the cool, crystal-clear fountain. Three times he would plunge himself into that fountain, and as he rose from the waters the third time, he'd be finally restored to his former splendor and would fly off into a brand new life, John, like the eagle, through the stories that he tells and the language that he uses, takes us close to the purging and to the cleansing power, not of the Son, but of the Son of God Himself. He's the one who speaks of Christ weeping, the plaintive cry of Christ at a loved one lost. He surveys the whole in his gospel, and yet fills his tales with so many details and and with nuance that each time we read, we discover something new about this Christ and something new about ourselves in relation to this Christ, and we cannot but be transformed if we'll only listen. The first Christians in Scotland more than 1,500 years ago had a deep love of the, the gospel of John, they resonated with the depth of the telling of, of, of the story and of the passion that seemed to, to lie behind this particular telling of the gospel. One of the verses that we, we read tonight talks about one who is called the beloved disciple, whom tradition has named as John the Apostle, one reclining at the table next to Jesus, The passage goes on to talk about this particular disciple leaning in to the bosom of the Lord. The earliest Scottish Christians spoke of this disciple as one listening to the heartbeat of God. I'm sure many of you, as you lie in bed at night waiting for sleep to come upon you, have from time to time been surprised by the by the sound and the feeling of your own heart beating. But I wonder if you've ever held anyone so close, so intimately, and rested your head upon their chest and suddenly realized that 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 deep but almost silent sound is the beating of the other's heart. It's a sound, but it's not really a sound. You can barely hear it. You can more feel it than hear it it's a sound, it's a feeling that although it comes from the other, it almost seems like it's a part of you because you're so close, you're so intimate. As you listen, you feel that you're at peace, that you and the other are no longer separate, but you've become one as the beats of your heart pulse together in one resonant, rhythmic sound. It's a sound that from even before the beginning of life, I suppose, is most familiar. It's the first sound that the brand-new hearing ears of of an unborn baby in the womb will hear, the pulsing rhythmic beat of her mother's heart. They say that it's the sound that will calm brand-new infants— as they're taken out of the familiar warmth and security and safety of the womb, being brought close to their mother's heart, reminds them very primally that they're safe, that they're secure. Perhaps even at some instinctual level, they know that they are loved. As we read this passage, then, we see this this great eagle eye vision of all the disciples sitting at the table with the Lord. We then move in closer to the conversation that takes place, to the, to the foot-washing, listening to Christ teaching about this. We, we, we move still closer into the awkwardness in the room as Jesus makes this awful declaration of betrayal. And then, and then we're drawn even closer still from all of this into the stillness and into the intimacy and and into the power of the heartbeat of the lord himself so as this one called the beloved disciple rests his head upon the breast of the lord what did he hear what did he hear as the heartbeat of god what did it sound like? What does that sound like? I think it's a sound that all of us know, but we've somehow forgotten. Surely when God fashioned the whole of creation into being, it wasn't just a cold, harsh word that He spoke into the void and into the chaotic darkness, let there be light. It wasn't just a a random act to pass the time as He formed the man out of the dust of the earth. God's words, God's actions come out of His very heart. He had purpose. He had reason. The whole of creation was brought into being like like an unborn child in in the womb of His mother with a profound awareness of the heartbeat of God. The teacher in Ecclesiastes, in chapter 3 and verse 11, says that God has made everything beautiful in its time and has placed eternity in our hearts. If this sense of the eternal, this this heartbeat of God is something that we've we've all heard and experienced, the forgotten, then what does it sound like? How can we begin again to remember like an old song long forgotten? What can bring it back to our awareness? Don't you think it's significant in this passage that we're never told the name of this particular disciple. I think the fact that tradition has called him John spoils the effect of the telling of this story. He's not given a name. He's simply known as the beloved disciple, the one who is loved. Not the one who loved Jesus, but the one whom Jesus loved. You see, the love of Jesus is primary. It comes first. Before we love Him, He loved us and loves us. The Lord says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I wonder if we don't think of ourselves, that we have to get ourselves into a a place of loving God I wonder if we often think of ourselves that we have to do something pleasing and acceptable to God before He can ever possibly love me, before He could ever possibly accept me. I wonder if we even think that in the cross and through Christ's intercession, Christ Himself is somehow changing the way that God sees us. Well, listen to how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 5. He says, while we were still far off, while we were at enmity with God, while we were still sinners, enemies of God, opposed to God, far from God, God loved us. This is the beloved disciple, the one who, who is loved by his Lord. We're not told what he thought of Jesus, as if that's important. We're simply told that he is loved. That's first, and that's everything. It's the beginning, and that's the end. And that's how this whole passage begins. John sets the tone for us at the very beginning, and he reminds us of the nature and of the sound of the heartbeat of God. I wonder if you heard it when we read these words. I'm going to read them again. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Later on, say those words again to yourself. Repeat them again and again. Again. Do you hear the heartbeat of God in these words? Does it remind you of something that you may very well have forgotten? I think many of us see the cross of Christ as being all that the gospel is about, that it's only, only in the cross that the love of Christ and the love of God is revealed. Now, absolutely, The cross stands at the center of the Christian faith, and it was on the cross that Christ made everything right. He brought the Beloved back into the arms of the lover. But this verse, having loved his own who were in the world, this verse won't let us forget that the love of God in Christ was prior to the cross And typical of John's gospel, the second part of the verse, he loved them to the end, leaves us with a multiplicity of meanings. It points beyond that moment when Jesus is with his disciples, beyond that moment to the very end of his life, he loved them unto death. But it points even beyond that, doesn't it? It points to the end of all things temporal, He loved them to the end of time. And then in typical understatement, it points even into eternity itself. I suppose you could say the verse actually says, He loved His own from before time began, before they could even imagine being loved by such a one, and His love for them extends beyond time and never dies. Every time, every time I perform uh, the baptism of an infant, you will hear me say these words For you, Jesus Christ came into the world. For you, he lived and showed God's love. For you, he suffered the darkness of Calvary and cried at the last, It is accomplished. For you, He triumphed over death and rose in newness of life. For you, He ascended to reign at God's right hand. All this He did for you, even though you do not know it yet. And so the word of Scripture is fulfilled we love because He loved us first. There's one other thing I want you to notice. There's many things we could talk about in this passage, but one final thing I want you to notice about this passage. We're told that that all of this takes place one night during a supper. It's significant, though, that in John's gospel, this is not, this is not the Passover meal. John is very, very clear about this. He begins the passage by saying in verse 1, before the festival of Passover. This is not a Passover meal. So, for John, in his telling of this story, this is a meal just like any other meal, and yet it's a meal unlike any they had ever had before. In his book, The Life of the Beloved, Henry Nouwen writes this about meals. Isn't a meal together the most beautiful expression of our desire to be given to each other in our brokenness? The table, the food, the drinks, the words, the stories, are they not the most intimate ways in which we not only express The desire to give our lives to each other, but also to do this in actuality. I very much like the expression breaking bread together because there the breaking and the giving are so clearly one. When we eat together, we are vulnerable to one another. Around the table, we can't wear weapons of any sort. Eating from the same bread and drinking from the same cup calls us to live in unity and peace. This becomes very visible when there's conflict. Then eating and drinking together can, can become a truly threatening event. Then the meal can become the most dreaded moment of the day. We all know about painful silences during dinner. They contrast starkly with the intimacy of, of eating and drinking together and the distance between those sitting around the table can be unbearable. On the other hand, a really peaceful and joyous meal together belongs to the greatest moments of life. Don't you think that our desire to eat together is an expression of an even deeper desire to be food for one another? Don't we sometimes say that that was a very nurturing conversation, that was a refreshing time I think that our deepest human desire is to give ourselves to each other as a source of physical, emotional, and spiritual growth. Isn't the baby at its mother's breast one of the most moving signs of human love? Isn't tasting the best word to to express the experience of intimacy? Don't lovers in their ecstatic moments experience their love as a desire to eat and to drink one another? As the beloved ones… Our greatest fulfillment lies in becoming bread for the world. That is the most intimate expression of our deepest desire to give ourselves to each other. As we share in this meal, then, with the Lord who loves us and loved us first. And as we share this meal with one another, let's incline our heads to His breast, and let's listen. And perhaps, just perhaps, we might hear the heartbeat of God in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen and let us pray. We pray responsively from the bulletin, the prayer of confession. Lord Jesus Christ, how well You know our hearts, and still You love us. You have loved us to the end. We have denied You, and we have denied our calling to serve one another. We have betrayed You, and we have betrayed Your commandment to love one another. Pour out Your Spirit of grace upon us. Teach us to love and serve You faithfully, and to love and serve one another by the example that You have set for us. In Your holy name we pray. Amen.